The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. He was an artist. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to artists. He was a German. Such things as happened to him happen sometimes to Germans. He was young, handsome, studious, enthusiastic, metaphysical, reckless, unbelieving, heartless. And being young, handsome, and eloquent, he was beloved. He was an orphan under the guardianship of his dead father's brother, his uncle Wilhelm, in whose house he had been brought up from a little child. And she who loved him was his cousin, his cousin Gertrude, whom he swore he loved in return. Did he love her? Yes, when he first swore it. It soon wore out, this passionate love. How threadbare and wretched a sentiment it became at last in the selfish heart of the student. But in its golden dawn, when he was only 19 and had just returned from his apprenticeship to a great painter at Antwerp, and they wandered together in the most romantic outskirts of the city at rosy sunset, by holy moonlight, or bright and joyous morning, how beautiful a dream. They kept it a secret from Wilhelm, as he had the father's ambition of a wealthy suitor for his only child, a cold and dreary vision beside the lover's dream. So they are betrothed, and standing side by side when the dying sun and the pale rising moon divide the heavens, he puts the betrothal ring upon her finger the white and taper finger whose slender shape he knows so well. This ring is a peculiar one, a massive golden serpent, its tail in its mouth, the symbol of eternity. It had been his mother's, and he would know it amongst a thousand. If he were to become blind tomorrow, he could select it from amongst a thousand by the touch alone. He places it on her finger, and they swear to be true to each other forever and ever, through trouble and danger, sorrow and change, and wealth or poverty. Her father must needs be one to consent to their union by and by, for they were now betrothed, and death alone could part them. But the young student, the scoffer at Revelation, yet the enthusiastic adorer of the mystical, asks, can death part us? I would return to you from the grave, Gertrude. My soul would come back and be near my love, and you, you, if you died before me, the cold earth would not hold you from me. If you loved me, you would return, and again these fair arms would be clasped round my neck as they are now. But she told him, with a holier light in her deep blue eyes than had ever shone in his, she told him the dead who die at peace with God are happy in heaven and cannot return to the troubled earth, and that it is only the suicide, the lost wretch on whom sorrowful angels shut the door of paradise, whose unholy spirit haunts the footsteps of the living. The first year of their betrothal is past, and she is alone, for he has gone to Italy on a commission for some rich man to copy Raphael's, Titian's, Guido's in a gallery in Florence. He has gone to win fame, perhaps, but it is not the less bitter. He is gone. 
Of course, her father misses his young nephew, who has been a son to him, and he thinks his daughter's sadness no more than a cousin should feel for a cousin's absence. In the meantime, the weeks and months pass. The lover writes, often at first, then seldom. At last, not at all. How many excuses she invents for him. How many times she goes to the distant little post office, to which he is to address his letters. How many times she hopes, only to be disappointed. How many times she despairs, only to hope again. But real despair comes at last, and will not be put off anymore. The rich suitor appears on the scene, and her father is determined. She is to marry at once. The wedding day is fixed, the 15th of June. The date seems to burn into her brain. The date, written in fire, dances forever before her eyes. The date, shrieked by the Furies, sounds continually in her ears. But there is time yet. It is the middle of May. There is time for a letter to reach him at Florence. There is time for him to come to Brunswick, to take her away and marry her, in spite of her father, in spite of the whole world. But the days and the weeks fly by, and he does not write. He does not come. This is indeed despair which usurps her heart and will not be put away. It is the 14th of June. For the last time, she goes to the little post office. For the last time, she asked the old question, and they give her, for the last time, the dreary answer. No. No letter. For the last time. For tomorrow is the day appointed for the bridal. Her father will hear no entreaties. Her rich suitor will not listen to her prayers. They will not be put off a day, an hour. Tonight alone is hers, this night, which she may employ as she will. She takes another path than that which leads home. She hurries through some by streets of the city, out onto a lonely bridge, where he and she had stood so often in the sunset, watching the rosy-colored light glow fade and die upon the river. He returns from Florence. He had received her letter. That letter, lauded with tears, entreating, despairing. He had received it, but he loved her no longer. A young Florentine, who had sat to him for a model, had bewitched his fancy. That fancy which with him stood in place of a heart, and Gertrude had been half forgotten. If she had a rich suitor, good, let her marry him. Better for her, better far for himself. He had no wish to fetter himself with a wife. Had he not his art always? His eternal bride, his unchanging mistress. Thus, he thought it wiser to delay his journey to Brunswick so that he should arrive when the wedding was over, arrive in time to salute the bride. And the vows, the mystical fancies, the belief in his return, even after death, to the embrace of his beloved, oh, gone out of his life, 
melted away forever those foolish dreams of his boyhood. So, on the 15th of June, he enters Brunswick, by that very bridge on which she stood, the stars looking down on her the night before. He strolls across the bridge and down by the water's edge, a great rough dog at his heels, and the smoke from his short meerschaum pipe curling in blue wreaths fantastically in the pure morning air. He had his sketchbook under his arm, and attracted now and then by some object that catches his artist eye, stops to draw. A few weeds and pebbles on the river's brink, a crag on the opposite shore, a group of pollard willows in the distance. When he is done, he admires his drawing, shuts his sketchbook, empties the ashes from his pipe, refills from his tobacco pouch, sings the refrain of a gay drinking song, calls to his dog, smokes again, and walks on. Suddenly, he opens his sketchbook again. This time, that which attracts him is a group of figures. But what is it? It is not a funeral, for there are no mourners. It is not a funeral, but a corpse lying on a rude bier, covered with an old sail, carried between two bearers. It is not a funeral, for the bearers are fishermen, fishermen in their everyday garb. About a hundred yards from him, they rest their burden on a bank. One stands at the head of the bier, the other throws himself down at the foot of it, and thus they form the perfect group. He walks back two or three paces, selects his point of sight, and begins to sketch a hurried outline. He has finished it before they move. He hears their voices, though he cannot hear their words, and wonders what they can be talking of. Presently, he walks on and joins them. You have a corpse there, my friends, he says. Yes, a corpse washed ashore an hour ago. Drowned? Yes, drowned. A young girl, very handsome. Suicides are always handsome, says the painter. And then he stands for a little walk while idly smoking and meditating, looking at the sharp outline of the corpse and the stiff folds of the rough canvas covering. Life is such a golden holiday for him, young, ambitious, clever, that it seems as though sorrow and death could have no part in his destiny. At last he says that, as this poor suicide is so handsome, he should like to make a sketch of her. He gives the fishermen some money, and they offer to remove the sailcloth that covers her features. No, he will do it himself. He lifts the rough, coarse, wet canvas from her face, what face? The face that shone on the dreams of his foolish boyhood. The face which once was the light of his uncle's home. His cousin Gertrude. His betrothed. He sees, as in one glance while he draws one breath, the rigid features, the marble arms, the hands crossed on the cold bosom, and... On the third finger of the left hand, the ring which had been his mother's, the golden serpent. The ring which, if he were to become blind, he could select from a thousand others by the touch alone. But he is a genius and a metaphysician. A grief, true grief, is not for such as he. His first thought is flight. 
flight anywhere out of that accursed city, anywhere far from the brink of that hideous river, anywhere away from remorse, anywhere to forget. He is miles on the road that leads away from Brunswick before he knows that he has walked a step. It is only when his dog lies down panting at his feet that he feels how exhausted he is himself and sits down upon a bank to rest. How the landscape spins round and round before his dazzled eyes, while his morning sketch of the two fishermen in the canvas-covered beer glares redly at him out of the twilight. At last, after sitting a long time by the roadside, idly playing with his dog, idly smoking, idly lounging, looking as any idle, light-hearted traveling student might look, yet all the while acting over that morning scene in his burning brain a hundred times a minute. At last he grows a little more composed and tries presently to think of himself as he is, apart from his cousin's suicide, apart from that. He was no worse off than he was yesterday. His genius was not gone. The money he had earned at Florence still lined his pocketbook. He was his own master, free to go whither he would. And while he sits on the roadside, trying to separate himself from the scene of that morning, trying to put away the image of the corpse covered with a damp canvas sail, trying to think of what he should do next, where he should go, to be farthest away from Brunswick and remorse. The old diligence comes rumbling and jingling along. He remembers it. It goes from Brunswick to Aix-la-Chapelle. He whistles to the dog, shouts to the postillion to stop, and springs into the coop. During the whole evening, through the long night, though he does not once close his eyes, he never speaks a word. But when morning dawns and the other passengers awake and begin to talk to each other, he joins in the conversation. He tells them that he is an artist, that he is going to Cologne and to Antwerp to copy Rubens's and the great picture by Quentin Matsys in the museum. He remembered afterwards that he talked and laughed boisterously, and that when he was talking and laughing loudest, a passenger, older and graver than the rest, opened the window near him and told him to put his head out. He remembered the fresh air blowing in his face, the singing of the birds in his ears, and the flat fields and roadside reeling before his eyes. He remembered this, and then falling in a lifeless heap on the floor of the diligence. It is a fever that keeps him for six long weeks on a bed at a hotel in Aix-la-Chapelle. He gets well and, accompanied by his dog, starts on foot for Cologne. By this time, he is his former self once more. Again, the blue smoke from his short meerschaum curls upwards in the morning air. Again, he sings some old university drinking song. Again, stops here and there, meditating and sketching. He is happy and has forgotten his cousin. And so on to Cologne. It is by the great cathedral he is standing, with his dog at his side. It is night, the bells have just chimed the hour, and the clocks are striking eleven. The moonlight shines full upon the magnificent pile over which the artist's eyes wanders, absorbed in the beauty of form. He is not thinking of his drowned cousin, for he has forgotten her 
and is happy. Suddenly, someone, something from behind him, puts two cold arms round his neck and clasps its hands on his breast. And yet, there is no one behind him. For on the flags bathed in the broad moonlight, there are only two shadows, his own and his dog's. He turns quickly round. There is no one, nothing to be seen in the broad square but himself and his dog. And though he feels, he cannot see the cold arms clasped round his neck. It is not ghostly, this embrace, for it is palpable to the touch. It cannot be real for it is invisible. He tries to throw off the cold caress. He clasps the hands in his own to tear them asunder and to cast them off his neck. He can feel the long, delicate fingers cold and wet beneath his touch. And on the third finger of the left hand, he can feel the ring which was his mother's, the golden serpent. The ring which he has always said he would know among a thousand by the touch alone. He knows it now. His dead cousin's cold arms are round his neck. His dead cousin's wet hands are clasped upon his breast. He asks himself if he is mad. Up, Leo, he shouts. Up, up, boy. And the Newfoundland leaps to his shoulders. The dog's paws are on the dead hands, and the animal utters a terrific howl and springs away from his master. The student stands in the moonlight, the dead arms around his neck, and the dog at a little distance moaning piteously. Presently, a watchman, alarmed by the howling of the dog, comes into the square to see what is wrong. In a breath, the cold arms are gone. He takes the watchman home to the hotel with him and gives him money. In his gratitude, he could have given the man half his little fortune. Will it ever come to him again, this embrace of the dead? He tries never to be alone. He makes a hundred acquaintances and shares the chamber of another student. He starts up if he is left by himself in the public room of the inn where he is staying and runs into the street. People notice his strange actions and begin to think that he is mad. But in spite of all, he is alone once more. For one night, the public room being empty for a moment, when on some idle pretense he strolls into the street, the street is empty too. And for a second time, he feels the cold arms round his neck. And for the second time, when he calls his dog, the animal shrinks away from him with a piteous howl. After this, he leaves Cologne, still traveling on foot, of necessity now, for his money is getting low. He joins traveling hawkers. He walks side by side with laborers. He talks to every foot passenger he falls in with and tries from morning till night to get company on the road. At night, he sleeps by the fire in the kitchen of the inn at which he stops, but do what he will, he is often alone. And it is now a common thing for him to feel the cold arms around his neck. Many months have passed since his cousin's death, autumn, winter, early spring. His money is nearly gone, 
His health is utterly broken. He is the shadow of his former self, and he is getting near to Paris. He will reach that city at the time of the carnival. To this he looks forward. In Paris, in carnival time, he need never, surely, be alone. Never feel that deadly caress. He may even recover his lost gaiety, his lost health. Once more resume his profession, once more earn fame and money by his art. How hard he tries to get over the distance that divides him from Paris, while day by day he grows weaker, and his steps slower and more heavy. But there is an end at last. The long, dreary roads are past. This is Paris, which he enters for the first time of which he has dreamed so much. Paris, whose million voices are to exercise his phantom. To him tonight, Paris seems one vast chaos of lights, music, and confusion. Lights which dance before his eyes and will not be still. Music that rings in his ears and deafens him. Confusion, which makes his head whirl round and round. But in spite of all, he finds the opera house, where there is a masked ball. He has enough money left to buy a ticket of admission and to hire a domino to throw over his shabby dress. It seems only a moment after his entering the gates of Paris that he is in the very midst of all the wild gaiety of the opera house ball. No more darkness, no more loneliness, and a lovely Devadus hanging on his arm. The boisterous gaiety he feels surely is his old lightheartedness come back. He hears the people round him talking of the outrageous conduct of some drunken student, and it is to him they point when they say this. To him, who has not moistened his lips since yesterday at noon. For even now he will not drink, though his lips are parched and his throat burning. He cannot drink. His voice is thick and hoarse, and his utterance indistinct. But still, this must be his old lightheartedness come back that makes him so wildly gay. The little de Bardus is wearied out. Her arm rests on his shoulder, heavier than lead. The other dancers, one by one, drop off. The lights in the chandeliers, one by one, die out. The decorations look pale and shadowy in that dim light, which is neither night nor day. A faint glimmer from the dying lamps, a pale streak of cold gray from the newborn day, creeping in through half-open shutters. And by this light, the bright-eyed de Bardus fades sadly. He looks her in the face. How the brightness of her eyes dies out. Again, he looks her in the face. How white that face has grown. Again. And now, it is the shadow of a face alone that looks in his. Again, and they are gone. The bright eyes, the face, the shadow of the face. He is alone, alone in that vast saloon. Alone, and in the terrible silence, he hears the echoes of his own footsteps in that dismal dance which has no music. No music but the beating of his breast. The cold arms are around his neck. They whirl him round, 
They will not be flung off or cast away. He can no more escape from their icy grasp than he can escape from death. He looks behind him. There's nothing but himself in the great empty saw, but he can feel cold, death-like. But oh, how palpable. The long, slender fingers and the ring which was his mother's. He tries to shout, but he has no power in his burning throat. The silence of the place is only broken by the echoes of his own footsteps and the dance from which he cannot extricate himself. Who says he has no partner? The cold hands are clasped on his breast, and now he does not shun their caress. No, one more polka if he drops down dead. The lights are all out, and half an hour after, the gendarmes come in with a lantern to see that the house is empty. They are followed by a great dog that they have found seated howling on the steps of the theater. Near the principal entrance, they stumble over. The body of a student who has died from want of food, exhaustion, and the breaking of a blood vessel. Creeping along the hall at midnight uh -huh. Shadows dancing in the corner of your eye Voices floating from downstairs after twilight Big note Specters moaning from the attic in reply Everyone has a spooky story, something they don't discuss but life is a haunted oratory when you're like us. So sit tight, turn on the light, and curl up with some ghoulish history. Something a little dark and dreary. Serve with a heaping dose of eerie. Raise those Moscow mules and clink them. Whoopsies. Ghost. Wrong turns and gloomy roads. Towns that aren't there. Phantoms in the backseat staring Faces in mid-air Stage fright, ghost lights Along dead divas talk song Yeah, I'm out Spirits searching For the one who did wrong History's full of spooky stories Stuff we just don't discuss But life is a haunted oratory If you ask us So Sit tight, turn on the light And curl up with some ghoulish history Oh, nope, it's too scary <laughs> It's too scary, I'm out No, you're fine, it's not scary You say that every time But this one's really good, though uh, But then I can't sleep But it'll be fun Ugh, fine Hi, I'm Jamie Markey I'm Michael Tatum, and this is episode 100 of Ghoul Intentions! What the actual fuck? <laughs> uh, whoopsies, 100. Um, whoopsies, 100. Holy shit. Uh, so, first, <laughs> I want to talk about that fucking song because it's so good. Michael has been working on it, it for a while. 
And then... And then we we got uh, Brandon, of course. Brandon lended his angelic tones. And we got our friend Amanda Lee, known as Amelie, to many of you, to sing, uh, which is great, because she does not like scary stuff. So asking her to read a submission... Yeah, we've been trying to get her to read a (laughs) scary... She refuses. She's like, out of question. Sorry, I love you guys, but I can't. I can't do this. And I was like, what about a fun song? And she was like, okay. Yeah, it's so good. And yeah. oh, they did so good. They did. I I'm really proud of it. it. I'm pretty proud. And, and our more discerning listeners will catch uh, some of their own stories, perhaps, referenced in the lyrics. That's true. So, yes, it's so good. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It makes me so happy. I've been uh, wanting to do that for a while. I just wanted to write like a cool, like old timey, like almost like a rag of uh, yes. version of the waltz that, you know, we hear that we open the, the podcast with every week. And I'm like, yeah, the fuck, it's fun. And I'm like, well, well, let's add lyrics. What the hell? So there, that's our new opening song. And I'm real proud of it. I'm really, really pleased. It's so good. And it's yes, so that's, good. that is me. Oh, I love it so much. And that is me oh. playing the harpsichord uh, in, in the thing or playing a, you know, uh, <laughs> playing a synthesizer that sounds like a harpsichord at any rate. But that is me. It's me. Yay, so you did it. You made it all. I did. You created that. I, That's so fucking I, cool. I did a thing. Um, it's very nice. That's the one good thing about the quarantine is I've been focusing more on composing, uh, which I've always wanted to do. And so I've been like composing like mad. So I have a whole, this folder on my computer that's like music for quarantine. And <laughs> That is when I finally put an album out. That's probably just what I'm going to call it is like. <laughs> right. Music for quarantine. Yeah. Um, I love it. Uh, well, thank you, by the way, for absolutely slaying our cold open. No pun intended. Thank you. Well, and that one, um, the cold embrace, um, is it's really fun. And, you know, we have looked at a lot of these old and we have a couple of um, of these older Victorian style uh, mm-hmm. stories that we'll be telling. But um, <laughs> the issue that I have had is because we look for there's a lot of women that write these stories mm-hmm. as well. But yep. being the time that it was, they wrote a lot of them from a male's perspective. And so that's how this one initially appears. But uh, if you, in case you hadn't noticed <laughs> listening, I took it the approach of more of it is uh, Gertrude, the cousin, the the love uh who is telling the story. And so I had a little more fun with it because I could put her character into it. And some some of these, like, the heartbreak and then the mm-hmm. the um, almost revenge, right? She's back like, like he said yes. she would be. But yes. this time, maybe not the way that he had intended. Ooh. So, yeah. I love it. And you know, it's interesting, too, because it talks about, of course, suicide. And, you know, we talk about, suicide often that it comes sure. it just comes up. Yeah. And there's a book that I'm reading that I find interesting and we had talked about this some um, that <laughs> the uh, this person who wrote the book blamed the Catholic Church for mm, ghosts mm, that mm. don't cross over because they have been taught their whole lives that if there was a suicide if they um, enacted suicide or you know it weren't <clears throat> perfect that they couldn't go to heaven because, you know, of this. And they talked, too, about how up until 2007, they believed, the Catholic Church believed and promoted this, that if your uh, baby were to die before it was baptized, that it would not go to heaven, it would go to limbo. 
And that, that was, you know, to get that baptism, uh, to get that money to the church right away. Right. If you are Catholic, I am not intending to offend you. This is just historically what has happened. And in 2007, I think it was, they stopped it. And they're like, it's not even that limbo isn't a thing anymore. It's that it was never a thing. So you had all of these parents and people. It was just a marketing ploy. (laughs) Right. And it it was heartbreaking for families to think that their baby wasn't going to be in heaven, you know, and and stuff like that. You know, original sin, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But anyway, their perspective was that people don't go to the light or whatever it is you choose to say. They don't go over because they don't think they can. Yeah. And so that yeah. it's kind and of a so self-imposed really in- interesting it's kind of the philosophy. idea of ghosts kind of and having just, this self-imposed purgatory based on yeah. what they've been conditioned to believe. Right, um, right. And so it was really funny that immediately after we talk about I mean we talked about it 2 days ago I think. Mm-hmm. And then the story that we both read and decided to use for the cold open um ended up being exactly that kind of I can't because of this. And so it's just a really interesting yeah. way to think about how spirits get stuck. I'm um, really fascinated but, by the idea, and I, I want to play with this at some point in something I write. You know, I've, I've always wanted to write a story or a show or something revolving around the concept of ghosts not knowing or for, like being ghosts for so long they've forgotten who they really were in life and instead um, begin to identify with the stories being told about them. To the point mm-hmm. where they're like, you know, maybe they have some epiphany where they're just kind of like, holy shit, you mean I wasn't a pirate king? I'm just some dude from like the 20s? I was a clerk? You know, I mean, I... <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be interesting to see? Because I think it's um, I, perhaps spirits more so than, than than living people are more susceptible to not realizing the story they're in. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, Jack and I talk about this quite a bit. And Jack always comes at it. From the perspective of Dungeons and Dragons and like (laughs) (laughs) those role playing type things. I mean, that's a solid approach. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. And all of the, um, the tiers, I'm going to forget the word and he's going to be so disappointed in me, but the different levels, like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and that once somebody dies, it's neither good nor bad. It just is something, but that can drain energy from things. Mm -hmm. And so it has a tendency to be negative energy, even though it's not necessarily bad and that that can drain on you. And, you know, he's written some of that (laughs) into some of his campaigns before, but look, you know, if you, it's really interesting to compare what we think about afterlife with what has been written. And it's a lot of it's been taken from, Mm -hmm. you know, myth and, and history to build this whole area in D and D and stuff like that, hmm. but it was we have very ridiculous, interesting conversations about <laughs> how they parallel. I love it. I'm I'm a big fan of this uh, French uh, uh, um, scholar. I can't fucking what is his name? I I have like every one of his books that I've been able to that have been translated into into English, and um, because he he he's it's pretty technical stuff. Like so, I can't like my French is good it's not that good and um but he's he's basically done like just this crazy task of going back and revisiting uh beliefs even in the early medieval christian era you know like beliefs that you know we we just see it's interesting going back and looking at beliefs of what constituted you know the paranormal in those days even though that's not a word people would have used it's interesting yeah. how how what we think of as ghosts and 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 werewolves witches astral projection all those sorts of things that we sort of take for granted now um 
had were just came in much subtler shades back then that we've since lost because you know it's just no longer at the forefront of how we look at the world. Most people, yeah, you know, we're too distracted. Well, yeah, by and other I mean things. a lot of it, I think, is belief. You know, I've talked about. When certain things happen in, like, Malaysia, mm-hmm. I'm always like, fuck yeah, that's totally real. That's what's happening. And I was thinking about it <laughs> a few days ago as well. But, you know, in a lot of books, you know, you have um, American Gods and some, you know, mm-hmm. comic books mm-hmm. that still um, graphic novel, what have you. <laughs> but in a lot of these stories, and there's a couple of other books that I've read that include this, that, that gods lose their power when people stop believing in them. Mm-hmm. So in that same kind of Slender Man thing, like if you believe it into existence, it can be real. And so there's a lot of belief and faith in supernatural things in countries that are not um, as boring (laughs) (laughs) and that are more connected to their ancestors and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So Mm -hmm. they believe it. Why wouldn't it be true? Well, yeah, I mean, think of it all the time. How many? Oh, the planes. The planes. I had to text Jack and ask him the different planes. Oh, the planes. The planes. Yes, yes, yes. It's so obvious now. I'm sure everybody was screaming (laughs) at me, planes. But (laughs) planes. It's planes that exist. Yeah, but anyway. Oh, I love it. Well, before we continue, shall I uh, lay out the news of the weird this week? There's a couple of yes, good, a good fun, so fun items. Um, I, there's a running theme here because of the, the your tweet the other day with what our names would be like if we replaced the first four letters with fuck. Yes. <laughs> so mine was what? My- my, mine was, mine was uh, <laughs> J, J fuckle fuck em. <laughs> Yeah. Mine was pronunciation Fouquet. Uh, what was it? Fuck high. Fouquet, fuck high. Fouquet, uh, fuck high. So what you do is you take, if you haven't seen the tweet, it was so much fun. I can't believe how many people jumped on board. It's so great. Just, yeah, yeah, reading them cracked me up. But uh, it's you take the first four letters of your name and replace them with fuck. And first name and last name. Uh-huh. And so mine was Fouquet, fuck high. Or all, and, or all you know, of your I names think, we, if it's interesting. It was, you know, we were doing everyone's. Uh, Jack and I were doing everyone's name. It's like, what would Michael's be? What would Brandon's be? <laughs> we just had the best. You're right. It's so time. great. It was so ridiculous. So the first story I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the uh, first news <laughs> item is called Pig Fucker. Nice. Now, <laughs> I mean, not nice. That's not nice. It's not what you think. I just wanted a shocking title. Um, oh, okay. There's a ticking time bomb when it comes to wild hogs and the billions in damage they cause. Something Mm. else to be worried about in 2020. There are about 9 million feral hogs in the U.S., and those numbers are ballooning, increasing the estimated 2.5 million in damage they already cost the U.S. each year. That's according to Dale Nolte, manager of the National Feral Swine Damage Management Program. That's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Say that through tusks. At the Department of Agriculture who tells The Atlantic that the increasing numbers of feral hogs in the U.S. is sometimes referred to as a feral swine bomb. (laughs) God. God, I love how every profession has its own unique names for the the crises that are particular to that profession. Yeah. (laughs) We call this a broken arrow. We call this a feral swine bomb. (laughs) He says because they can reproduce so quickly, it's very difficult to control the problem. Quote, to go from 1,000 to 2,000, it's not a big deal, Nolte told The Atlantic. But if you've got a million, 
doesn't take long to get to four, then eight million. Nolte says some feral hogs, domestic breeds, and European wild boar have crossbred and become what we call super pigs. <laughs> According to Nolte, they're highly intelligent, have very good senses of, uh, have a very good sense of smell, and have physical attributes like heavy fur that increase their ability to survive in the wild. Uh, this is what they inherit from boars. Equally problematic are the qualities they get from domestic pigs, which have been bred to be fertile at all times and to have large mm. litters, more than 10 piglets apiece, or a litter on average. Feral hogs are also able to grow very big, about 75 to 250 pounds on average, the Department of Agriculture says, but they can be twice that size on occasion and reach up to three feet high. So I'm now convinced that Genji is actually part super pig. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our Frenchie Genji, not not the Overwatch character. Uh, the problem <laughs> with the hybrid, though I don't know, uh, the problem with the hybrids <laughs> is you get all the massive benefits of all that genetics, says biologist Ryan Brook of the University of Saskatchewan. Hogs, according to Texas Parks and Wildlife, have four tusks that are constantly growing, two on top, two on bottom. They tend to be dark brown or black once they mature, and they can run up to 30 miles an hour. You can, in the state of Texas, and I'm sure other states, uh, they have um, hunting for boars, uh -huh. but it's very dangerous. Uh, so what you can do is pay to go in a helicopter and shoot them with a machine gun <laughs> from above. Jesus Christ. Because it's that out of control. They're just like, what can we do to take to minimize the con Yeah. <laughs> and you can't, they're not good. Like they're not, you can't like eat them. I just want They're to go to the store and, like, good. talk to bacon, racks of bacon, like, you tell them hell's coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next story is also called Pig Fucker. Nice. Okay. Scam evangelist Jim Baker <laughs> mm. claims he will refuse any government mandates that require mask usage, probably to cover his goddamn tusks. In a press release, Baker also <laughs> claimed masks were satanic and part of a government plot to suppress Christianity. How can you go to church and pray when you're wearing a mask, said Baker. Do you think God can hear your prayers through a mask? Now, before we continue, I just want to say I love that he seems to be selling you on this image of God as an old man on a cloud going, hey, you can't understand. Use your words. You mumble. That's your problem. There's nothing wrong with my hearing. <laughs> Many other fundamentalist preachers have also refused to wear masks in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. But Greg... have they, like Tim ba or, uh, Ted Baker, gone to prison for stealing <laughs> right. from their flock? Uh, we weird. Weird. It's yeah. almost like it's a, a systemic problem within that yeah. given industry. Greg Locke, hmm. pastor of Global Vision Bible Church in Tennessee, declared he was, quote, sick of this mask brigade nonsense in a Facebook video. We don't require masks at our church, he said. We probably had 450 people crammed into a tent this weekend. Two people in the whole place had a mask. They want to wear a mask. That is great. I'm not going to mandate it. As a matter of fact, I discourage it because I think it's utter Nonsense. There's a uh, word in there that I think is very telling, <laughs> and that word is tent. <laughs> so I'm like, if they you're in a tent, mm, just saying, people, anyone that's inclined to to flock to these revivals, if you're in a tent and the preacher is driving a Mercedes, mm, that's a red flag. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And conspiracy nut Chris McDonald claimed wearing a mask could lead to being forced to wear a hijab or a Gestapo uniform, according to right wing, uh, to right wing watch, wow. which I think is hilarious. Like it's it could be that extreme, or it could be this other extreme. <laughs> oh my, right. Jesus Christ. Or it could be just like 
a normal thing that you would do to to you know protect people, people from a fucking virus. Because you know what? Sometimes, mm-hmm. yeah, prayer can be effective, but maybe give God a break if you can do be helping yourself. Like God's gonna be like, what? Why do? Why do I? I'm busy. Do this shit. Just yeah. wear a fucking mask. Anyway. What would Jesus do? Would he scream about his freedom or would he put on a fucking mask? I think Help. Jesus yeah, would take a that's... fucking tire iron to these guys' it's just Mercedes. Like, what are your problems right now? Right? Like that is such telling mm-hmm. that's so telling of what your problems in life are right now that wearing a mask is what offends you about freedom. Really? It's not so it's it. not bills. Don't, you don't have not, to worry about your money. Yeah, you don't it's have not to bills. worry about it's your not rights. The you don't have to worry about your dead. It's not any of that. It's like you're just like I just you just want something to bitch about because you're fucking bored. Yep. Or you have some pathological phobia of wearing masks, which hey, if you do, I get it. Phobias are very Stay real the things. Fuck home. But it's Jesus Christ, fucking deal with it and stop trying to be like, I'm not wearing a mask. It's wrong because you don't have the same fucking issue about having to wear shoes or a shirt when you go in to fucking mm-hmm. order something. And if you do, you're a fucking antisocial piece of shit who just doesn't get to avail yourself of the benefits of the social right. contract if you can't contribute. <gasps> Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so specifically. Yeah, just like <laughs> what, cough on each other in the tent and stay there for two weeks. I just, happens. I think it's, I don't myself Listen to morons. And if you think, uh, I mean, I will because it's entertaining, but I don't I don't follow mm. the advice of morons. Because if you are not wearing a mask around me, you are an idiot if you think gambling with my life endears me to your perspective. It does not. Right. You're a fucking idiot to think that. And that tells me everything I need to know about why you're even wearing the mask. You're clearly a fucking moron. Oh. For not wearing the mask? For not wearing the mask. Yeah. Did I say wearing the mask? Sorry. Yeah. I get so confused. It, the message gets confusing I'm without s- that <laughs> important let, let me word. Let me be clear. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not wearing a mask in public, go fuck yourself. Um, right. Specifically, polls and rapid response studies have also shown that Americans who are more religious or religiously conservative, i.e. evangelicals, were more likely to distrust scientific and media sources over the president. And subsequently less likely to socially distance, wear masks, or otherwise take recommended precautionary measures, while more secular Americans were more likely to follow the guidelines. More specifically, we theorize, says the study, that divergent behavioral responses to the COVID-19 pandemic were more strongly shaped by hyper-partisan and ultra-conservative ideology that has already been shown to lower Americans' trusts in, trust in science and scientific expertise. And it's funny, I think if this fucking guy is like, you know, ah, it's the government coming in like you have the government it's yours right now you have your president in the fucking white house you have your congress is controlled by your fucking party and you still have a fucking problem with the powers that be pick well, because a the fucking government issue and trump are two different things and they choose trump I, yeah, but it's like, why choose Trump if you don't think he has any power within his own government? Uh, I think you could end it at why choose Trump. I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the end of that question. That's very true. And yeah. uh, Jesus fucking Christ. All right, next story. Also, <laughs> next story is also, fuck this guy. An Anchorage dentist who extracted a patient's tooth while on a hoverboard was sentenced Monday to 12 years in prison for dozens of charges, including Medicaid fraud. Seth Lookhart was captured on video extracting the tooth from the unconscious patient. Anchorage Superior Court Judge Michael Wolverton said Monday that Lookhart nearly killed several patients by frequently sedating them for extended periods of time unnecessarily. In reviewing all this over and over again, uh, he said, I have this visceral response. You darn near killed some people. 
Lookhart was found guilty by a jury in January on 46 charges, including Medicaid fraud, embezzlement, reckless endangerment, and unlawful dental acts. I love that that's a thing. I mean, I hate that they happen. Unlawful dental acts. Unlawful dental acts. How do you take off... Take out a tooth with a hover where oh, how it, do you do mm, anything on a hoverboard? Right. He formerly worked at Alaska Dental Arts in 2015, but bought the business the following year and changed its name to Clear Creek Dental. Charges against Lookhart were filed in 2017 after a former employee told investigators the dentist was increasing profits by performing more intravenous sedation than necessary. In 2016, Lookhart and his former office manager, Shauna Cranford, billed nearly $2 million in unjustified IV sedation expenses, according to charging documents. Medicaid patients do not pay anything for IV sedation, but the clinic could bill for uh, could bill more for IV sedation than for other anesthetics like nitric oxide. Uh, Medicaid patients would routinely be sedated for longer than needed, so the clinic could bill for more money. Investigators found numerous text messages from Lookhart describing the scheme. During a trial that had began that began last November, former employees and patients testified, including a woman whose tooth was pulled while Lookhart rode on a hoverboard. In a video recorded on a cell phone, the dentist can be seen standing over an unconscious patient and pulling her tooth out while riding a hoverboard. He then rides into the hallway with his hands over his head and spins around. Another patient testified about having four teeth removed without his permission. <gasps> Lookhart's dental license was suspended in 2017 after the charges were filed, but Wolverton ruled to, uh, Monday that Lookhart will not be allowed to practice medicine during his 10-year probation following release from prison. Prosecutors, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah, fuck this piece of shit. Prosecutors on Monday asked Wolverton to order Lookhart to pay $2.2 million in restitution for the fraud and embezzlement, although the amount will be determined at a hearing later this month. According to the charges, Lookhart also allowed uh, Cranford, who is not a licensed dentist, to extract a patient's tooth. She accepted a consolidated plea agreement on 40 charges in October and is scheduled for sentencing this week. Ah. Wow. What's wrong with people? Oh, God. Next story. This poor fuck. (laughs) (laughs) One of the more interesting aspects of the 2020 NFL season is the fact that there are no fans in the majority of the stadiums. To counter this, broadcasts have been using fake crowd noises to simulate what fans would sound like if they were there. Well, the Fox broadcast certainly captured the essence of Eagles fans last Sunday as whoever is behind the controls hit the boo button on Carson Wentz. (gasps) (laughs) The Eagles quarterback. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's no whoops about it. The Eagles quarterback was struggling in Philadelphia's home game against the Rams after a failed third down, uh, after a failed third down throw, I try to say like I know what any of this means, fans, quote unquote, could be heard booing their quarterback. (laughs) Things did not improve for Wentz as the game went on. In the third quarter, Wentz was leading the Eagles down the field when he threw an interception in the end zone. Following the pick, the Fox crew once again turned on the boo boards. Oh, no. <laughs> what an asshole thing to do. It's like, it's like. Uh, but I, I get... respect it. <laughs> <laughs> I respect it, too. I do, too. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> oh, God. And finally, the fuck With incense, smoke, flowers, and photos of President Donald Trump and Democratic rival Joe Biden, Peruvian shamans performed an ancestral ritual on Wednesday for the U.S. elections. But there's little agreement about who would win. Chanting and blowing a traditional Andean shell instrument, the shamans, dressed in multicolored garb, invoked the uh, Panchamama, or Mother Earth, for the U.S. vote to take place in peace without attacks or any witchcraft between the rivals. Shaman teacher Anna Marie Simeon, during the ritual, held in a low 
well-lit room of an old building in downtown Lima said she was in favor of Biden. That is why we are cleansing him, she said. We have seen that they are attacking him with witchcraft, with a black doll, with a voodoo doll. They are shadowing to remove him said the shaman with necklaces wrapped around her neck. During the ritual, the shamans, dressed in Andean ponchos and cloaks, rubbed medicinal plants, fruits, and even a live snake on photos of Democratic candidate Biden and Republican Trump. According to uh, a Reuters uh, ISOPS poll on Wednesday, Biden leads Trump nationally among likely U.S. voters by 9 percentage points, with 50 percent of likely voters planning to cast ballots for Biden, while 41 percent were doing the same for Trump. Good energies to Mr. Donald Trump, said the master shaman Pablo Torres, carrying the snake on one of his shoulders after squirting a strange liquid from his mouth into the image of Trump. I just love that sentence. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Why? Because he is deserving. He needs good energies, good vibes from his followers. He said, we are supporters of the gentleman. He will win. He is a winner. <laughs> Scott, so even the fucking shaman vote is split. Wow. <laughs> Just Man. Don't it's so weird. We live in weird uh, times. I have had to really take a step back from a lot of it, especially oh, God. Haven't after we all? the, you know, RGB passed away. Rest mm -hmm. in peace or mm -hmm. rest in power or, you know, she will be dearly missed. Um, God, yeah. Yeah. But, oh, oh. Uh, yeah, after that and all, I just, at some point, I just had to be like, I got to take a step back mm -hmm. because it is a little to end of the world right now for my comfort level. And that doesn't mean I can't, I won't be active or I won't vote or any of those things. Of course I will. But just... Yeah, it's, sometimes it's too much, and so you have to take a step back for your own mental health, mm -hmm. and then you can dive back in. But well, and I think by doing that, you're like you're bound can't. to make better choices because you won't be acting on impulse. Yeah, uh, you'll have cut. You'll be coming from a place of like, okay, I can kind of set myself aside from this and kind of give it a bird's eye view, which everyone should do. But we're we're so dissuaded from doing that because everything's on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, uh, you know, I, um, I, I feel is by design. I mean, it just so happens that all these crises are happening in election year. So, of course, and I'm not saying the crises aren't happening, but it's, I feel like the world, and this is just my own personal opinion, so feel free to, you know, say I'm a quack, but I feel like the world's always burning. Maybe not to it this is, level. It is. But it suddenly becomes an issue when the news yeah. wants it to be an issue. And so Well, anytime there's change, mm -hmm. especially it gets even more. And so I think we're in a we're about to have some really positive changes, but you have to fight to get there. If you look mm -hmm. through history, there's a lot of fighting and and stuff that's happening right now before change. So the positive outcome is the change. The problem is the fighting to get there. Oh, um, but one God. of my favorite things I saw was the little girl that they, uh, the artist put, it's a bronze little girl that's standing in front of the bull of Wall Street. Uh-huh. They put uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the, um, the, the shawl that she wore. Yeah. On the, it was really sweet. Oh. It was really cool. But anyway. Ugh. She meant a lot to a lot of people. She but did. I think Certainly to me. Especially. And to you. Yeah. Those of us that she you know, passed, worked on laws, mm. <laughs> upheld laws for those people that I guess aren't old white men. Uh, and that was really <laughs> right. nice. That was really nice of her to do. Right. So right. Mm. anyway. Um, mm. I, thought, okay. I think she was a fucking hero. And I hope she was. I hope America she can was. live up to her example. Yeah. Right. So enough politics. Let's get right. to ghosts and shit. <laughs> yes. And on that note. Uh, let's take take a second. I want to take a break and yes. talk about something for just a second. Mm, mm, right. mm. Hey guys, we're here to talk to you about our Patreon. Yay! 
Um, if you love the show, we would love your support. We are trying um, to stay away from commercials and other things that might interrupt you, except for this interruption right here. Which is um, still just, you're getting more of us, so what are you complaining right. about? Yeah, yeah, but just to encourage those of you who have been so supportive, um, if you would like to help us financially, we would appreciate your patronage. We and you can would. do that at patreon.com slash intentions, or just uh, search Patreon and Ghoul Intentions. It'll come up. It's also on the cover um, or on the front of our um, Ghoul Intentions website, which is ghoulintentions.com. It's yes. pretty easy to find. Um, we have several different tiers. You can donate anything from a dollar to twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, at eight dollars, you can join the Discord, and the Discord is a really good community. They're playing D and D on oh, there. There's so much fun. Lots of chats <laughs> and support groups and all it's kinds really of stuff. Cool. It's a really really fun community. And we also will do chats with you guys twice yes. a month. So. For everybody that's on Discord, our chats this month in September of 2020 will be on the 12th, yes. and that will be at noon Central, Central Standard, Standard time. time. So noon Texas time. That's right. And then uh, I love that Central Standard. It's Texas time. That's such a Texas <laughs> thing to say. Uh, and then for our Phantasm tier, the highest tier, we have an additional uh, chat with y'all, and that will be on the 26th at noon as well. Now, those are both Saturdays, so hopefully that'll accommodate uh, our friends overseas who who have very different schedules, obviously. And uh, yeah, please join, because we love talking to you guys. It's really a lot of fun. It's just we love the interaction. Jamie and I are talkers, you may have noticed. And so getting to talk to you guys, you know, in in a chat setting is really kind of cool and fun. So join us. Join us. Yeah. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast. The Patreon actually helps us not only um, get pay Matt <laughs> to, yeah, who is worth his engineer. weight in gold rest he assured he sure is but we also if we are going to go places and host any kind of ghost tours we are definitely going to need uh, uh, some more income for that so yep. Uh, yep. anything that you guys can do we really really appreciate um, join the Patreon thank you guys for all your support love you Mwah. okay we're back we are we are we are and so what we're going to do for this, our 100th fucking episode, (laughs) is is we're going to kind of go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when we first started the podcast, we uh, did several stories that were more mixed, that, Mm -hmm. you know, it was creepy story, then we talk about it, then creepy story. And they were, um, you know, stories that have been sent in by our listeners Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. before they ever listened, which was really cool of everybody to do. We had some really, really great stories. Uh, and so that was that's how we started. And then things delved into we heard about places, we talked about hauntings, and we wanted to get into the history of it. And both Michael and I love history. Yeah. So very quickly, we were doing uh, back and forth, you tell the story, I'll tell a story, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And we, op- yeah. we started with the cold open. And um, (laughs) so that just kind of is how it worked out. But we wanted to kind of Mm -hmm. go back to the beginning. But also one of our other favorite things that has come from the podcast is the ghosticles, where we just read y'all's ghost stories uh, to each other (laughs) without much preparation, if any. It's so much fun to cold read them because you get to hear us reacting in real time. Like we're, 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 we're going on the journey with you. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's right. So we're kind of doing a combination of those. What mm-hmm. we're going to do, though, is uh, something that we've discussed and have found very interesting is the difference in storytelling now for a ghost story or horror versus when they were really, really big, first really 
big for the first time, I guess, in such a, yeah. a major at least in like public, pu- yeah to be published, uh, you know, published, yeah. And so those stories were quite a bit longer, as you can hear from the cold uh, open. That's oh, a yeah. long story, yeah. But it yeah. really sets the scene, and one of the things you'll see is that it. More modern stories have a tendency to we have less patience, so they get to the good <laughs> stuff faster, right? Even in a in a horror movie, it almost a spooky movie. It will almost always start with a scary scene and then get into the story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we want that scary fast, right? Mm-hmm. We want to we want to know what we're in for, and so the scene isn't set as thoroughly as it used to be, but that is because. Those stories set the scenes for us already. We already know where we're supposed to be because yeah. of how they set those scenes in their writing at yeah. the turn of the when, century. When the great ghost story or writers were, uh, yeah, when the great ghost story writers were operating, you know, the the conventions of the ghost story hadn't been set, so they were still mm-hmm. kind of finding their way. And now that those conventions have been in place mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. Um, you know, we can take them for granted. It's sort of like, you know, when you go and watch a show, like when you binge watch a show versus when you watch the, uh, you know, you watch it in real time week to week, you know, the old way of watching week to week. Yeah, it's very helpful to have those recaps, but you don't need them when right. you're binging. And so you just fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of, kind of, it's interesting to see how the style evolves because not only do the, what happens in fiction uh, tends to begin to reflect reality in the sense of how we interpret our real life experiences of the paranormal. So it's very interesting to see how much of the old ghost story conventions we've internalized as a society so that yes. we they can be taken for granted when we're trying to express our own real life experience with the paranormal. I find that really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So So what we're going to do is do a modern true quote true ghost story uh and then that we got from Reddit. 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 Yeah. Yes, yes. We got it from Reddit and then we're putting a um, now, we could do a modern published story, but uh, that's not public domain. So <laughs> That we requires went. paying copyright laws. I mean, yeah. yeah, and we're not— We'd have to uh, raise the Patreon uh, tiers, and we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's an extra tier, and we don't want to do that. So uh, we have Reddit for modern story, mm-hmm. followed by Michael's going to read a longer story. A longer story, fictional a longer, story from the classic um, Golden Age. Yes, and then when we'll finish it with another uh, modern story, so that we can kind of compare yeah. how that's how the stories are being told. That's so here fun. we go. Uh, the first one is called Ghostin, and that's <laughs> from Reddit user Reddit user Reduxalicious. <laughs> Reduxalicious. What an appropriate it. name for the topic. Yeah, uh, this was about six years ago in early 2014. This is a very modern story. <laughs> so modern. So it's present day. I'm a merchant mariner and at the time was working as an oiler in the engineering department of an American flagged car carrier. Strange things have happened to me all my life, but this would be the t- uh, be, this would be the time that I'd seen something on a ship. I was on the midnight to noon watch with the third engineer. In the middle of my readings one night, out... Oh, that's hard to say. Okay. I clearly have never been on a ship because these words are foreign to me. Okay. The phrasing is foreign. Okay. In the middle of my readings one night out, I noticed an orange blur in my peripheral moving along the lower deck. I turned and caught a glimpse of bright orange coveralls walking down the shaft. Engineers don't wear coveralls, so I assumed it had to be one of the deck crew. 
I finished up my reading and walked down to the lower level to find whoever this was. I thought maybe it could have been the AB on Nightwatch, except they don't make grounds in engineering. I went down, but no one's there. I figured I was just tired and finished up my readings. Later, while leaving the control room, I saw the door to the machine shop flap closed. Probably one of the deckies looking to steal a tool, I thought. As I entered the shop, the door to the storage room was just closing. I followed. No one was there. The only other way out would be through steering and up onto the main cargo deck. I continued on into steering, gave a quick glance around, but again found nothing. On the way back out, I glanced into the hydraulics room. There he was, facing away from me, looking at a panel. So inconspicuous, I almost walked by. I caught myself mid-step and shouted over the sound of the steering pumps to get his attention. The man jumped. Just as he turned around, the ship lost power. <laughs> this was nothing new. The ship had a faulty shaft generator, so I wasn't particularly phased until I turned on my flashlight and realized the man was gone. I looked around. Nothing. I got a little nervous at that point, but just yeah. before panic set in, the diesel generators kicked on. With the lights restored, I went back to the control room and asked the third if he'd seen a decky leave the engine room. He said no. A few days later, I was talking to the boatswain's mate in the deck locker. The boatswain's mate in the deck locker. It's pronounced right. It's pronounced bosun, just so you know. Bosun? <laughs> bosun, just bosun. 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 So the T, the S, the W, <laughs> are all and the A are optional. all silent? <laughs> yeah. All right. It's such it's a, a great, useful tool. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's try that again. <laughs> A few days later, I was talking to the bosun's mate in the deck locker when I noticed a picture hanging nearby, like a kind of memorial. I asked him about it, and the bosun, see that? He's spelled differently, B-O-S apostrophe N. Yep. That makes more sense. I asked him about it, and the bosun said it had been there a while. The ship used to be a Swedish, used to be Swedish flagged. They'd had a death aboard back then before it became a U.S., before it became U.S. flagged. I told the bosun what I'd seen a few days prior. Oh, yeah, he said. We see him roaming the cargo deck sometimes. I didn't have anything else happen that trip, and we even got the shaft generator fixed in the next port, but still was sort of wild having that happen in the last place I'd ever expect. <laughs> that is nice. It's quick. It's to the point. It's mm -hmm. creepy, but also seems rather naive. Why would you think a ship wouldn't be haunted as fuck? <laughs> well, he's an engineer, so he, that's just not, oh, yeah. it, you know, it's a, it's not a, it's not a point of view that necessarily helps him in his day-to-day -day life, so it's not first, it's not a priority, which I think is interesting. I, what I like about the story uh, and the tone, like if we were looking at it as though it were fictional, even though it is not, the tone of the story is quick and concise, as you observed, mm -hmm. because it reflects how it reflects the fact that he's an engineer. Engineers tend to be very concise with their language and to try to, like, set things down. You can always hear a person of a professional bent who has to, like, be very careful with their language and be as concise and precise as possible because they'll they'll tend to overemphasize certain elements of the story and not leave much to the imagination because they want to make sure that you know that they're being as objective as possible. Right, right. They're taking everything yeah. into consideration. Because objectivity is very important to their career. And, right, and, yeah. 
you know, and that that mindset probably brought them to that career. But it's interesting that he's, you know, this is clearly someone who is like, well, I'm an engineer, despite the fact that I've had some weird shit happen in my life. So who's the impression I get from this story? My my deeper reading of it is that, you know, if, <laughs> if he comes from a life or certainly a childhood where a lot of weird shit happened, perhaps the need to have him to think more rationally and be logical and be drawn toward a profession that has specific black and white rules was maybe what drew him to that was the need to kind of manage the chaos he was experiencing uh, mm-hmm. in other areas of his life with regards to like, shit, we live in a world where everything could happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so isn't that interesting? But I, I, I find the story very believable because of the details yeah. here and there and, right. and the way he goes about it. So all of that is what, you know, if you're writing a story, uh, if it's true or not true, you know, you have to make it believable for the reader so that we yeah. can buy the elements of it that are completely outlandish. Like, oh, my God. You, you, the thing about ghost stories that people sometimes, especially fans of ghost stories like us, lose sight of is that when you're, you know, once you get past the outward trappings of, you know, the haunted house or the graveyard or the haunted ship in this case, you know, all the details are there to kind of buttress what is, in fact, an amazing claim. The idea that someone who yeah. is dead is still hanging out. Um, right. And, and <laughs> is seen by multiple people uh-huh. often. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. yeah, we see them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, on a ship where it's engineers talking to each other in particular. And both of us. Uh, I may not speak engineering terminology, but I do speak engineer as well. Both of our fathers <laughs> were very engineer-minded. Mm, yep, that's true. Right? Um, my dad was actually a chemical engineer, biochemical engineer, technically. <laughs> and so <Yeah. laughs> there was always yeah. that. And, and we had so many weird things happen in the house. He just gave up trying to explain them. Yeah, and, and, and my dad because, was kind of the same way. Yeah, um, it's like, well, you know, he just didn't really talk about it. You know, and yeah. my, you know, my grandfather was the same way until, and of course he was military and, you know, my mom and my grandmother never wanted to talk to him about stuff like that because they didn't think he, you know, it was that, that dad thing. The dads don't believe, right? Dads don't yeah. believe it's going on. It tends on, to conflict with the dad it. mindset, at least as we, yeah. as, as we think the dad mindset yeah. is. Until one day my mom and my grandmother and I were telling ghost stories. My grandpa came in. He's like, what y'all doing? And um, I love to stir the pot, as we all know. <laughs> and so I was like, we're just talking about how that house you lived in in Virginia was haunted. And he was like, oh, the one on the base? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, that one was really haunted. <laughs> and then he turned around and walked off, and my mother and my grandmother's jaw hit the floor. Both of them were shocked. They did not think he believed it at all. He never mentioned anything else, never said what happened or why he thought it was haunted, but he just was like, yeah, it's haunted. <laughs> and that was it. And then he walked off, and they were like, what? <laughs> it was really great. It's really funny. That's why, and and you know, in the classic age of the ghost story, as well as modern times, the the most believable, um, <laughs> I guess, the most believable witnesses are people that don't have a very strong opinion about whether or not yeah. ghosts are real. They just go, I have no. Like I could see an engineer being like, I had a weird experience, but I'm like, fuck, am I supposed to do with it? It doesn't help me in my day to day life. So I mean, I, yeah. it happened. I don't deny it, but it's always. I find it personally difficult to to believe skeptics that that seem very passionate about their skepticism, though I understand mm-hmm. it. Um, and on the same token, sometimes people that take a lot of different elements of the mythology of spiritualist uh, of ghosts, whatever, for granted, sometimes can can raise warning flags in me as well. So I'm very a, a right. very happy medium sort of guy where I'm like, you know, I don't I don't want people that believe everything, but I don't want people that refuse to believe anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because those people are equally fucking annoying. 
It's so true. It's so true. I mean, confirmation bias is a thing. It is. You have to be aware of that, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and... and all of that, but so my, uh, I guess my favorite type of protagonist in a ghost story is the one that has a weird experience and just goes, "Well, shit." Yeah, right. Because <laughs> that I fi- was I weird. Find... It's the Jack. It's the uh, Jack. Yeah, I find that, that very relatable. Um, yeah, you know, my dad growing up also, as you observed, very engineer minded. I mean, he was, you know, he was a, a, a mechanical and uh, regulating engineer. He was safety engineer, so he did all kinds of crazy shit, but and knew a little mm-hmm. bit of everything, and very, very rationally minded. Um, I saw him once react so strongly to, I think it was, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? It's uh, uh, um, uh, an Indian mystic still around. Oh, God, what's his name? He just used to make the rounds on Oprah and talk about, like, you know, higher consciousness and things like that. And he was on, Dad caught a quick glimpse of, or a quick clip of him on some show talking about how I'm trying to convince you that this table here, as you can feel, isn't real. And my dad, normally not a very animated guy, was like, bullshit! <laughs> yelling at the television. So that, you know, my dad is not, my dad is very kind of a dyed-in-the-wool materialist. Yeah. And when you talk to him about ghosts, he's like, ah, it's all in the head. It's all it's all bullshit. He's like, I've never experienced yeah. anything myself. But if you start talking to him and, and you know how to interview him, there are he has encountered things that don't fit within his worldview. And he's right. just he, and he'll freely admit, yeah, well, I don't know what the fuck that is. So I toss it away because I can't know. He's like, I can't know. And yeah. if I can't know it, I'm not interested. And right. so you kind of get at the heart of his skepticism. And it's interesting because my mom does believe in this kind of stuff, but she doesn't talk about it for the same reason. She's like, I yeah. believe in things, but I don't know what it means. So what's the point of talking about it? And she's just very yeah. shy about that kind of thing. So they're kind of a perfect contrast. But all of it to say, when you're writing a ghost story, or, or trying to, you know, put your own uh, paranormal experience into story form, you know, there are things you're going to unconsciously choose to do that you don't realize reflect a worldview that may alienate some people. Um, and on the same token, that can make it a very compelling story. Uh, yeah. I can't tell you how many times My dad we... was always pretty interesting with it because he uh, really loved, like, space science as oh, well, right? Oh, so did my dad. And he loved aliens. So... He totally believed in aliens. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure my I still believes in it, but like my dad probably did. My dad also was a balance of religious mm. and scientific, right? So you know that gave me a pretty balanced sense of you know, okay, uh, creationism versus um, uh, what's evolution? What's the one that's that the like science <laughs> evolution. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's like uh, versus the thing that's true uh, evolution. <laughs> um, but, you know, my dad saw ways to combine them. Yeah, and, and I, I'm always I thought that was that always way. very interesting. But if, like, the table thing, when somebody, you know, I'm trying to convince you this table doesn't exist, he would take it into a scientific realm. Like, okay, well, let's discuss what existence is mm-hmm. and how we can prove existence. So he would get on a totally different yeah. <laughs> level. And I'd be like, mm, I'm going to go watch something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and see, I, I love that kind of discussion. But that's yeah. me. I'm I'm a philosophy nerd, and, and I'm fascinated yeah. by spirituality. And um, one of the reasons I, I'm not a big fan of religion generally, just personally, and that this isn't meant to, you know, uh, rebuff anyone for being religious. I just don't. I, I'm I'm so fascinated by the spiritual that I think like organized religion tends to be like. I was having this discussion with our friend Vanessa the other day. I was like, it's like 
Organized religion sometimes feels like what happens when Hollywood gets a hold of a really good book. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. It's like, it's yes. like yeah, the, I just... the book was better, guys. <laughs> yeah. Right? But speaking of books, okay, so I should probably— what's your story? My story comes from uh, one of the masters of the ghost story during the Golden Age. Uh, M.R. James, uh, Montague Rhodes James, who uh, lived from 1862 to 1936. And he was a notice, uh, he was a British scholar and uh, a medievalist. So he studied uh, medieval writing and uh, various and symbology, all sorts of things. And he also was an expert in Bible Apophrica. So most of his stories reflect his scholarly pursuits, like in some way. Most of his protagonists are scholars who have the lid blown open on their own worldview because they're like, oh, shit. And uh, and he loved and he's most remembered now for, you know, being one of the one of the major figures of ghost story of the ghost story during, you know, the uh, early part of the 20th century, late Uh, 19th, early 20th. And there's a lot of stories I could have chosen, actually, but one of my favorites is a little one that actually he didn't like enough to try to publish in an anthology. It only came to light later. I think he just felt maybe it was... Maybe it was so ahead of its time that even he wasn't hmm. ready for it. But it's an interesting little one, and I think it, it relates especially because it has to do with how we interpret everyday events and how what might really be behind them is far more interesting than we assume. It's called The Malice of Inanimate Objects. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And it kind of makes me think of, there's no way, like, uh, uh, Final Destination didn't read this story. <laughs> Man, I was thinking about just randomly. Final Destination has changed my life in ways that you would never think. Like, I can't drive behind a logging semi. Nope. I'm going to have to get in the other lane and either slow way down or speed past them. I just, like, I can't. Anything that's holding a bunch of stuff, I'm always like, Final Destination. And it was like, (laughs) I was thinking that. And then the next day, I think Chrissy Teigen or someone (laughs) tweeted about it. And I was like, fucking yes. I feel the same way. (laughs) Like, so much of my life is now determined by whether this is a scene in Final Destination. I mean, really? Really? Well, and I get it. I totally get it. But this story may be what started it. At least in the modern right. age. The malice, Let's add to my anxiety. <laughs> the malice of inanimate objects is a subject upon which an old friend of mine was fond of dilating, and not without justification. In the lives of all of us, short or long, there have been days, dreadful days, on which we have had to acknowledge with gloomy resignation that our world has turned against us. I do not mean the mm. human world of our relations and friends. To enlarge on that is the province of nearly every modern novelist. In their books, it is called life, and an odd enough hash it is, as they portray it. No, it is the world of things that do not speak, or work, or hold congresses or conferences. It includes such beings as the collar stud, the inkstand, the fire, the razor, and, as age increases, the extra step on the staircase, which leads you either to expect or not to expect it. But these, and such as these, for I have, or by these, and such as these, for I have named but the merest fraction of them, the world is passed around, uh, or the word, excuse me, is passed around, and the day of misery arranged. Is the tale still remembered of how the cock and the hen went to pay a visit to Squire Corbs? How on the journey they met with and picked up a number of associates, encouraging each with the announcement, to Squire Corbs, we are going for a visit is owing. 
Thus, they secured the company of the needle, the egg, the duck, the cat, possibly, for memory is a little treacherous here, and, and finally, the millstone. And when it was discovered that Squire Corbs was for the moment out, they took up positions in his mansion and awaited his return. He did return, wearied, no doubt, by a day's work among his extensive properties. His nerves were first jarred by the raucous cry of the cock. He threw himself into his armchair and was lacerated by the needle. He went to the sink for a refreshing wash and was splashed all over by the duck, attempting to dry himself <laughs> with the towel, he broke the egg upon his face. He suffered other indignities from the hen and her accomplices, which I cannot now recollect. And finally, maddened with pain and fear, rushed out by the back door and had his brains dashed out by the millstone that had perched itself in the appropriate place. Truly, in the concluding words of the story, this Squire Corbs must have been either a very wicked or a very unfortunate man. It is the latter alternative which I incline to accept. There is nothing in the preliminaries to show that any slur rested upon his name or that his visitors had any injury to avenge. And will not this narrative serve as a striking example of that malice of which I have taken upon me to treat? It is, I know, the fact that Squire Corbs's visitors were not all of them, strictly speaking, inanimate. But are we sure that the perpetrators of this malice are really inanimate either? There are tales which seem to justify a doubt. Two men of mature years were seated in a pleasant garden after breakfast. One was reading the day's paper, the other sat with folded arms, plunged in thought, and on his face were a piece of sticking plaster and lines of care. His companion lowered his paper. What, said he, is the matter with you? The morning is bright, the birds are singing, I can hear no airplanes or motorbikes. No, replied Mr. Burton. It is nice enough, I agree, but I have a bad day before me. I cut myself shaving and spilt my tooth powder. Ah, said Mr. Manners, some people have all the luck. And with, ex with this expression of sympathy, he reverted to his paper. Hello, he exclaimed after a moment. Here's George Wilkins dead. You won't have any more bother with him anyhow. George Wilkins, said Mr. Burton, more than a little excitedly. Why, I didn't even know he was ill. No more he was, poor chap. Seems uh, to have thrown up the sponge and put an end to himself. Yes, he went on. It's some days back. What a this term. Is... <laughs> Thrown up the sponge. Thrown up the sponge. God, I just want to bring it back. Yes, he went on. It's some days back. This is the inquest. Seemed very much worried and depressed, they say. What about, I wonder? Could it have been that will you and he were having a row about? Row, said Mr. Burton angrily. There was no row. He hadn't a leg to stand on. He couldn't bring a scrap <laughs> of evidence. No, it may have been a half dozen things, but Lord, I never imagined he'd taken anything so hard as that. I don't know, said Mr. Manners. He was a man, I thought, who did take things hard. They rankled. Well, I'm sorry, though I never saw much of him. He must have gone through a lot to make him cut his throat. Not the way I should choose, by a long sight. Oh, lucky he hadn't had a family, anyhow. Look here, what about a walk round before lunch? I have an errand in the village. Mr. Burton assented rather heavily. He was perhaps reluctant to give the inanimate objects of the district a chance of getting at him. <laughs> if so, <laughs> he was right. He just I've escaped a nasty pearl over the scraper at the top of the steps. A thorny branch swept off his hat and scratched his fingers. And as they climbed a grassy slope, he fairly leapt into the air with a cry and came down flat upon his face. <laughs> what, what in the world, said his friend coming up. A great string of all things. What business? Oh, I see. Belongs to that kite, which lay on the grass a little further up. Now, if I can find out what little beast has left that kicking about, I'll let him have it, or rather I won't, for he shan't see this kite again. It's rather a good one, too. 
As they approached, a puff of wind raised the kite, and it seemed to sit up on its end and look at them with two large round eyes painted red, and below them, three large printed letters, I see you. Mm. Mr. Manners was amused and scanned the device with care. Ingenious, he said. It's a bit of a poster, of course. I see, full particulars, the word was. Mr. Burton, on the other hand, was not amused and thrust his stick through the kite. Mr. Manners was inclined to regret this. I dare say it serves him right, he said, but he'd taken a lot of trouble to make it. Who had? said Mr. Burton sharply. Oh, I, I see, you mean the boy. Yes, to be sure, who else? But come on down now, I want to leave a message before lunch. As they turned a corner into the main street, a rather muffled and choky voice was heard to say, Look out, I'm coming! They both stopped as if they had been shot. Who was that? said Manners. Bless if I didn't think I knew. Then, with almost a yell of laughter, he pointed with his stick. A cage with a gray parrot in it was hanging in an open window across the way. I was startled by George. Gave you a bit of a turn, too, didn't it? Burton was inaudible. Well, I shan't be a minute. You go on and make friends with the bird. But when he rejoined Burton, that unfortunate was not, it seemed, in trim for talking with either birds or men. He was some way ahead and going rather quickly. Manners paused for an instant at the parrot window and then hurried on, laughing more than ever. Have a good talk with Polly, said he as he came up. No, of course not, said Burton testily. I didn't bother about the beastly thing. Well, you wouldn't gotten much out of her if you tried, said Manners. I remembered after a bit. They've had her in the window for years. She's stuffed. Burton seemed about to make a <laughs> remark, but suppressed it. Decidedly, this was not Burton's day out. He choked at lunch. He broke a pipe. He tripped on the carpet. He dropped his book in the pond in the garden. Later on, he had or professed to have had a telephone call summoning him back to town the next day and cutting short what should have been a week's visit. And so glum was he uh, all the evening that Mr. Manor's disappointment in losing an ordinarily cheerful companion was not very sharp. At breakfast, Mr. Burton said little about his night, but he did intimate that he thought of looking in on his doctor. Oh, my hand's so shaky, he said. I really daren't shave this morning. Oh, I'm sorry, said Mr. Manners. My man could have managed that for you, but they'll put you right in no time. Farewells were said. By some means and for some reason, Mr. Burton contrived to reserve a compartment to himself. The train was not of the corridor type. But these precautions will avail little against the angry dead. I will not hmm. put dots or stars, for I dislike them, but I will say that apparently someone tried to shave Mr. Burton in the train and did not succeed overly well. He was, however, satisfied with what he had done, if we may judge from the fact that on... Uh, a once white napkin spread on Mr. Burton's chest was an inscription in red letters, G-O-W-F-E-C-I. Do not these facts, if facts they are, bear out my suggestion that there is something not inanimate uh, behind the malice of inanimate objects? Do they not further suggest that when this malice begins to show itself, we should be very particular to examine and, if possible, rectify any obliquities in our recent conduct? And do they not finally almost force upon us the conclusion that, like Squire Corbs, Mr. Burton must have been either a very wicked or a singularly unfortunate man? Quick note, G-E-O-W-F-E-C is essentially shorthand for George did this in Latin. Ah. Yes. And that is one of Ooh. my favorite little stories by the Master M.R. James. Yes. Yeah, that's definitely Final Destination shit. <laughs> right? Right? Oh, man. That's one of the I perks mean, of being I've... a ghost. You'd be like, they tell you, like, you have an entire, the entire world is your arsenal now. 
Yeah. Man. There have been days, though, that it's like I'm not doing anything else because I have injured oh, right. myself too many times. I have dropped too many <laughs> yeah. things. I figured it you of not... all people could relate to that story. I do. I totally do. Man, yesterday was a nightmare. Oh, God. <laughs> I, just, I imagine. We got, I, imagine. I ordered soup and then it was, it was silly. I, uh, I put I it was uh, like a Tom Ka Ga, but with noodles with rice noodles. It's really good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I put the noodles into a bowl, and then I put the soup. But the soup was a little too much for the bowl, so I had to like drink some of it. But it kept spilling out of the sides of the bowl, and so I put the bowl on a plate, which made it spill more, and, and it spilled all over the floor. So I kept having to clean it up while eating it before I like went to the table to eat. And that was just a real mess. It was just a real mess. And I was laughing about it. And then as I ate, um, <laughs> I had to sneeze, which then put food into my lungs. And oh, then God. I almost died. Jesus. Coughing that back up. And I was like, I'm an, and then I, pretty soon after that, I was like, well, I'm done eating because I <laughs> clearly, I clearly like, can't be trusted today. Right. And oh, then we were feeding the dogs and Jack was helping. <laughs> And I was holding the bowl, and he put Dexter's food in there, and my hand was just like, not today, bitch. <laughs> it just dropped the fucking bowl. So then a cup of food went everywhere. <laughs> I was Jesus. like, oh, oh my God, I got to go sit on the couch and not move. <laughs> this is not – as long as I'm stationary, I hope I'll be okay. <laughs> and then the roof caves in. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then a leak just on my head. <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh. God. Mm. Whew. I mean, there's a lesson, too. Don't get shaved on a train. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> That's just a common sense. I also, just don't piss off someone enough that they uh, kill themselves just so they can be a ghost that can kill you. Yeah. That's it's true also too. just general. I mean, you know, and maybe the George guy was an asshole to begin with. So, you know, there's really not much our friend Mr. Burton could have done. But just saying, if you have right. the chance not Unless to piss someone Mr. off. Mr. Burton also, there wasn't, he wasn't being haunted by anyone but his own fear that created maybe, it. Maybe. Maybe he created yeah. a, a tulpa, an evil Ooh. tulpa that's like, oh, you want me to kill you? Cool. Gotcha. Yes, master. Cool. No, All that's right. not what I wanted. But that, that's what you asked me. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, oh, I think court yes. cases can do that. Court cases can create their own tulpa. <laughs> yeah. I believe that. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> they certainly do seem to revel in a lot of fiction. Uh, that is so true. So true. Uh, okay. So, so bring us on home with the uh, the final our last non-fictional entry. Okay. This one is called The Haunted Grave, A Local Legend Realized. From Reddit user, oh my God, stop. <laughs> That's S-T-A-H-P. Stamp. Oh my God, stop. Love it. Okay. At first, I was skeptical, but I've come to know without a doubt that my partner is a, is gifted with necromancy or the ability to communicate with the dead. Necromancy, though, I feel like is more being able to control the dead. I think I think it's an umbrella term that all of it. I may, yeah, all of see, it. I feel I like so. a medium it communicates 
or the the dead communicate through a medium. Yeah, it, it's a rather loaded choice of words. I will say that, but you know, yeah, like necromancy. I'm like, why are you trying to control the dead to do your nefarious purposes? That's what necromancy means to me. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's so. what I thought too. Yeah, but read, <laughs> but I mean, but read on. Maybe we'll be surprised. That's true. That's true. Okay, maybe they are. Maybe they are. Uh, okay, <laughs> gift necromancy, communicate with the dead. He says that he inherited this gift from his mother, who was quite versed in her craft. She was a witch and a very good, kind, and holistic one at that. Sadly, he lost his mother when he was 17, and she was only in her early 40s. Such a young life cut short, but she passed on something special. In my small, mostly rural hometown, which is a three-hour drive from the larger city where we live, is a cemetery which contains the grave of a little girl who tragically passed away at only two years old in 1886. I'll omit her name out of respect. Stories say that she and her mother had made a batch of apple butter together. Apple butter. God, I'm so hungry now. <laughs> right. I just had a, like a moment. Uh, apple butter on toast. Yes. Oh God, yes. Oh, oh so good. Um, I, I'm gonna go get apple. I'm gonna get apple butter on my. I'm gonna have Alexa put it on her list. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the little girl got up in the night and went into the kitchen to sneak some remnants of the sweet spiced delicacy from inside the pot. Unknown to the family, the pot was made of lead and had been corroding. Sadly, the little girl was poisoned by the lead and did not live beyond those tender, innocent two years. According to local legend, the little girl's grave is said to be haunted. The gravestone itself is a life-size statue of her, which her parents had commissioned. It was rendered from an actual portrait of her, taken shortly before she died. The statue of the girl is on top of a pedestal. I bet it was taken after she died. I'm just saying. Right. 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 Late 1800s? That seems like prime time for that. Anyway, um, I can't not research in my head while I'm reading this story. (laughs) The statue of the girl is on top of a pedestal made of the same type of stone, so the gravestone is about seven feet tall in total. In the statue rendering, the girl's hands are folded in her lap. Somehow, the statue always holds flowers inside the clasped hands, though no one knows who leaves them because no one is ever seen placing them or removing the old bouquet. The flowers are just always there. One local legend states that if someone snatches the flower bouquet from the clasped hands of the statue at midnight, they can hear the little girl crying. Why would you do that? That's terrible. Anyway, though I have always taken interest in ghosts and the supernatural, I have never attempted this because, one, I was too scared, but mostly the mere thought of doing it made me feel sad. Yeah. Right? My partner and I, I mean, that's, it's, you can hear her crying if you're mean to her. Right? Why would you be mean to her? Poor little girl. That's horrible. That's horrible. Uh. Anyway. My partner and I took the trip to my hometown to visit my family. This was his first time ever visiting my neck of the woods, so it was totally unfamiliar to him. Naturally, after hearing the local legend of the little girl who haunted her own grave, my partner wanted to visit the cemetery to see if he could get any readings from her. So we made the short drive there. It's only a few miles from my parents' place. As we approached the cemetery, he said he thought he could faintly hear a little girl's voice, but all he could make out was, my feet hurt. My feet hurt. Mm-hmm. It didn't make any sense. This little girl was only two years old. 
why would she have sore feet? Was this even in the entity? Was this even the entity we intended to reach, or was some other spirit trying to connect? The voice grew slightly louder to him once we entered the cemetery, and even more so as we got closer to the site. Though still very faint, he could now definitively hear feet hurt as clear as day. When we finally reached her grave site, we were shocked to discover that her statue had been vandalized. The feet had been knocked off. <sighs> this occurrence really opened my eyes as to how real my partner's gift really is. There have been other instances over time which have given me even more solid confirmation, but I'll never forget the chill I got from this one. And he misses his mother every day. I wish I could have met her and that she had been a part of my life, but from what I've heard, experienced, and witnessed over the last five and a half years, a part of her most definitely lives on within the person I love. I have a feeling that she is indeed a part of my life, just not in the way most people experience here in the physical world. That's so sad. It's so sad. It's so it's I mean, also sweet, but it's also terrifying. It's like the little girl yeah. like is the little girl forced in at the afterlife to identify right. with her statue? Or is or it because is it she's just else so attached? someone else or is it because she died so young she doesn't understand that she's not the statue? Like I'm just it's yeah. so sad. Or is it someone else that has identified with the statue and become the statue and it's a totally different spirit altogether right. who sees it and recognizes it mm -hmm. and has become that? And what piece of shit vandalizes a grave? <laughs> I mean, terrible. It's terrible. Fuck That's that awful. person. Make their feet hurt. It's <laughs> a good story, though. Yeah, it's a really good That's story. Creepy. Really good story. That's really good. And you uh, see how the, the writing style was very, very different voice than than yes. the gentleman that wrote the the story about the ghost on the ship. Very different. He's yeah. someone for whom the paranormal is part of the fabric of their everyday life, and so they're able to yes. kind of talk about it almost in poetic terms because they're very, very comfortable with it. Uh, yeah. Creates a different kind of protagonist point of view. It absolutely does. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of, you know, you get both sides of that, too, in the older stuff. Um, mm -hmm. People that believe, yeah. disbelieve, you know, all of those kinds of stories. And we've been revisiting some of those for the cold open, so I'm sure we'll continue to do that because we love them. Yes. Um, and also with, you know, a lot of the actors, we know that they have favorites. And they also uh, are <laughs> loving being able to be creative and do something totally different. Yeah, so that's yeah. been really fun. Uh, yeah. But we'll continue to have guests as long as they want to be on. We will. Know, we will. Read those we opening love. stories and everything like that. Uh, Michael, what has your highlight been of uh, the hundred? Of the hundred. Oh, God. I still think my favorite part of it is like getting to delve really deeply into some it's into some of the subjects. And so I guess my favorite topics have been um, I skew a little more to the toward the cryptids. I love the ghost stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, let me give it let me give you a couple of answers. I think my favorite ghost story so far that we've done that I've researched was the brown lady of Ranham Hall. Um, mm -hmm. I just I love it. One. It's such a it's such a good it's just it's real life following the pattern of a classic ghost story, uh, but I believe it 100%. Um, and it's just, it's great. But and my some of my other favorite episodes, I love I love the two-parter we've, uh, the or the um, the multiple episodes we've done on the, the Kelly Goblins. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love the Skinwalker Ranch. Still Skinwalker one of my Ranch, favorites. Yeah. Still one of my favorites. That one's still just fucking, I think it's the, one of the greatest examples of paranormal research being done that's like, we don't know 
what this is. And it's just yeah. so much. It's, and it's a researcher's dream into this stuff because there's so much documentation and so much corroborating evidence from very, very reliable, professionally trained experts in various scientific fields. And yeah. I love that kind of shit. Love it. What about you? Yeah. For me, well, I mean, beyond being able to see you twice a week for years now. That's I mean, fun. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. That's we been have my favorite. To. We have to. Like, we don't have any excuses to not see each other. And that has been, uh, the past summer, been really, really nice because we have been home. You've been home. Mm. So you see uh, Brandon and Devin, and that's it. Unless you're yeah. crossing people that are, you know, walking outside, but you're keeping mm-hmm. your distance from those mm-hmm. people. You have um, been my whole society. I know, same. But I, I know that I got to see you mm-hmm. twice a week. And that's been really helpful. Um, then I would say, story-wise, I think what has been really fun is learning a different way to research things and to be more thorough in uh in, in looking up the history of things, looking up dates and seeing yeah. who, you know, looking at genealogy to find some history mm, stuff mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm, I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that. Um, but I think my favorite story is, is one, it's very early on. I think this really kicked it off for me of finding out more what what's behind the story uh-huh. was the Disney haunts. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. one of my favorites that you've done, too. And then uh, the Veliska. This yeah, Axe Murder House. Think, yeah. That's one of my favorites as well because there was a lot of research that went into that. And so it was the first time I'd really delved into it. Mm. And so mm. Uh, mm. that has been really good. And then I think finally getting to tell our story live in Texas of the Adolphus. That was a highlight. Those we haven't had a ton of those live shows, but they are really fun. It's it's a they good are. Time. They're so, the crowd is always so great, and we have so much mm-hmm. fun. I one of my favorite live shows. Uh, I think probably my favorite live show to date, and they've all been fun. But the one we did uh, in in uh, 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 Minneapolis, yeah, was fucking amazing. Yeah, it was. Got to be drinking our Moscow mules with it was. Carissa and, and Ash and the, the gang. It was great. And, yeah, you know some of the. The friends that we've made along the way. That's another great I know. one, too. We have we yeah. have a newfound spooky family, and I love it. We do. It's really cool. It's really cool, too, I think, the uh, to watch the Discord have become this whole community. We yeah. did not expect that. Um, and we're just glad to have been a part of it in any way, mm. much less what Very it's true. become. We're just, it's really cool to see everybody create yeah. that yeah um, so yeah it's so been great. great i love it me too thank you guys so much for supporting yes. us through this because mm-hmm. we, we really enjoyed doing it and it's nice to see something you enjoy doing grow into something that's really a positive thing for a lot of people a lot of good people so thank you guys really yeah. i mean you guys are the best part about what we get to do that's true. It's true. Uh, and Especially I'll say times that coming being up, what so they are. <laughs> it's interesting, too. We have the 100th episode, and then we're going right into October, right? right. I think we have one more week, and then we're in October. <laughs> and so we have some really fun themed episodes yeah. coming up. Yes. So get ready for that in October. It should be a lot of fun. We have a chat Saturday uh-huh, with the uh-huh, Discord. Uh-huh. So that's the, the <laughs> Phantasm members. We're excited to chat with you guys as usual. Yes. Um, so, and and yeah, special shout out to all of our Patreon uh, yeah, for supporting our, us. Yeah, you gave us Matt, and I just want to take a minute <laughs> we, yes. to shout out to Matt, who has saved our asses <laughs> so many times. Um, 
to be perfectly honest, without Matt, we probably wouldn't still be doing this. It's a lot of work to it's engineer these so things. It's so much work. Um, you know, for us especially. Mm -hmm. And we were pretty much at the end of our patience tether <laughs> with, <laughs> yeah. with uh, editing right? this. It's so and, true. and then Matt came in and thank you, Matt, so oh, much. Oh my God, Matt, for, you are the heart yeah. and soul <laughs> of the yeah, show. Yeah, we, we, I can say without a doubt, we would not be doing oh. this podcast right now. He's, if, he if is our rock. Doing it. So thank thank you. you, Matt Grounds. You're a hero. We fucking love you. Yes. Thank you to our listeners and um, keep sending in your stories, ghoulintentions.com. That's one of the other things. We love getting your stories. They're so much fun to read. Yes. Um, and to know that we're not alone. Like, yeah. there's weird shit happening to a lot of us out there. So, um, and if it hasn't happened to you, just know that it hasn't happened yet. Right. Or maybe you just <laughs> don't remember. Something. It'll happen. And then so. you'll be like, that is weird. And then you'll be like, Jack. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you thank again. You all. Happy 100th episode. Yay! Uh, stay safe. Stay sane. And remember, it's okay it's to okay sleep to with sleep the with lights, the lights on. on. We did it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs>